Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, today, once again, we will be reading from the book The Best That Money Can't Buy, Beyond Politics, Poverty, and War by Jacques Fresco. Today I'm going to have a show actually where we're going to be discussing the book as we read a chapter. And um, I have panelists now representing uh, several of the countries. Obviously, in this case, we only have three other panelists. Uh, we have another one who should be calling in shortly if he hasn't already. Oh, wait. Yes, he has. So I'm going to unmute him. Is that you, Thunder? Uh, would be me. Excellent, Thunder. Okay. Well, um, the first thing I wanted to do was to get our panelists individually to announce themselves. Uh, just briefly say who you are and um, what country you're from. And we will start with Azzy. Hi, my name is Azzy. I'm 16 years old and I live in Ireland. Dark Dancer? Hey, I'm Dark Dancer. I'm from the Netherlands. I'm uh, 21 years old and I live in the Netherlands. Uh, Proctor? Hey, um, I'm Proxy, um, environmental engineering student and 20 years old from Australia. And that leaves you, Thunder. <laughs> Everybody calls me Thunder. My real name is Gregory. I'm over 21 and I live in uh, California. <laughs> in the U.S. of A. In the well, U.S. of A. So we got two sides of one continent and a bunch of other continents represented here tonight on this show. Uh, I will be actually be going back because I, I like this new format better. We're going to be rereading some of the chapters that I had already touched on in my previous show, uh, but now we will be opening for commentary. Uh, and uh, I want to thank all of you for listening. I talked to Roxanne Meadows today about the show. She definitely likes the idea. And um, perhaps at some point today I will be able to comment a little bit on some of the projects that are coming up with the Venus Project and uh, media. So. Um, I am going to, uh, as I get ready to read the book here, I'm going to ask everybody to mute. I will be muting you, Thunder, but I will bring you back as soon as we're done with the first chapter. And uh, let's get this party started. All righty. All right. The Best That Money Can't Buy. Chapter 1, A Design for the Future. The future is fluid. Each act, decision, and each development creates new possibilities and eliminates others. But the future is ours to direct. In the past, change came so slowly that generations saw minimal difference in the daily business of surviving. Social, social structures and cultural, cultural norms remained static for centuries. In the last 50 to 100 years, Technology and social change accelerated to such an extent that governments and corporations now consider change management a core process. Hundreds of books address technological change, business process management, human productivity, and environmental issues. Universities offer advanced degrees in public and environmental affairs. Almost all overlook the major element in these systems human beings and their social structures and culture. Technology, policy, and automation count for nothing until humans accept them and apply them to their daily lives. This book offers a blueprint to con consciously 
fuse these elements into a sustainable future for all as well as for fundamental changes in the way we regard ourselves, one another, and our world. This can be accomplished with technology and cybernetics being applied with human and environmental concern to secure, protect, and encourage a more humane world for all. How can such a prodigious task be accomplished? First, we must survey and inventory all of our available planetary resources. Discussion about what is scarce and what is plentiful is just so much talk until we actually measure our resources. We must first baseline that there is what there is around the world. This information must be compiled so we know the parameters for humanizing social and technological development. This can be accomplished using computers to assist in defining the most humane and appropriate ways to manage environmental and human affairs. This is basically the function of government. With computers processing trillions of bits of information per second, existing technologies far exceed the human capacity for arriving at equitable and sustainable decisions concerning the development and distribution of physical resources. With this potential, we can eventually surpass the practice of political decisions being made on the basis of power and advantage. Eventually, with artificial intelligence, money may become irrelevant, particularly in a high-energy civilization in which material abundance eliminates the mindset of scarcity. We have arrived at a time when the methods of science and technology can provide abundance for all. It is no longer necessary to consciously withhold efficiency through planned obsolescence or to utilize an old and outworn monetary system. Although many of us consider ourselves forward thinkers, we still cling tenaciously to the old values of the monetary system. We accept without sufficient consideration a system that breeds inefficiencies and actually encourages the creation of shortages. For example, while many concerns about environmental destruction and the misuse of technology are justified, many environmentalists draw bleak scenarios about the future based on present-day methods and shortages. They view environmental destruction from the point of view that existing technologies are wasteful and used irresponsibly. They are accustomed to outmodeled concepts and the economic imperatives of sales turnover and customer appeal. Although we recognize that technological development has been misdirected, the benefits far outweigh the negatives. Only the most die-hard environmental activist would turn his back on the many elevating advances made in areas like medicine, communications, power generation, and food production. If human civilization is to endure, it must outgrow our conspicuous waste of time, effort, and natural resources. One area in which we see this is architecture. Resource conservation must be incorporated into our structures. With the conscious and intelligent application of today's science and technology, we can create, recreate the wetlands and encourage the symbiotic process between and among the elements of nature. This was not doable in earlier times. While many urban centers grapple with retrofitting new, more efficient technologies into their existing infrastructures, these efforts fall short of the potentials of technology. Not only must we, must we rebuild our thought patterns, but much of our physical infrastructure, including industrial plants, buildings, waterways, power systems, production and distribution processes, and transportation systems must be reconstructed from the ground up. Only then can our technology overcome resource deficiencies and provide universal abundance. If we are generally concerned 
about the environment and fellow human beings and want to end territorial disputes, war, crime, poverty, hunger, and the other problems that confront us today, the intelligent use of science and technology are the tools with which to achieve a new direction, one that will serve all people and not just a select few. The purpose of this technology is to free people from repetitive and boring jobs and allow them to experience the fullness of human relationships, denied to so many for so long. This will call for a basic adjustment in the way we think about what makes us human. Our times demand the declaration of the world's resources as the common heritage of all people. In a hundred years, historians may look back on our present civilization as a transition period from the dark ages of ignorance, superstition, and social insufficiency, just as we view the world a few hundred years ago. If we arrive at a saner world in which the maximum human potential is cultivated in every person, our descendants will not understand why our world produced only one Louis Pasteur, one Edison, one Tesla, or one Salk, and why great achievements in our age were the products of a relative few. In looking forward to this new millennium and back at the dim dimmest memories of human civilization, we see that the thoughts, dreams, and visions of humanity are limited by a perception of scarcity. Looks like somebody's trying to call me in the middle of my show. <laughs> anyway, my apologies. In looking forward to this new millennium and back at the dimmest memories of human civilization, we will see that the thoughts, dreams, and visions of humanity are limited by our perception of scarcity. We are products of a culture of deficiency which expects each confrontation and most activities to end with a winner and a loser. Funding restricts even technological development, which is the best potential for li to liberate humanity from its past insufficiencies. This seems very intent on calling me. A moment. Sorry about that brief pause. Now, we are produced products of a culture of deficiency, which expects each confrontation and most activities to end with a winner and a loser. Funding restricts even technological development, which has the best potential to liberate humanity from its past insufficiencies. We can no longer afford the luxury of such primitive thinking. There are other ways of looking at our lives and the world. Either we learn to live together in full cooperation, or we will cause our own extinction. To fully understand and appreciate this coming age, we must understand the relationship between creation and creator. The machine, and as of this writing, that most marvelous of mechanisms, the human being. Once again, I apologize for that brief interruption. Um, I am going to now open the floor, and first I would like to give Azzy an opportunity to comment. Um, have at it, Azzy. Well, what can I say, really? It just sounds like simple logic. It's simplified for anyone to read, really. You could pick it up and just realize how how it's in the right direction. It's quite easy to understand, but what I fail to understand is how people can actually look at that and disagree with it on a fundamental level. Well, I certainly don't... Yeah, I certainly see where you're coming from there. Um, 
And I'm going to move down to Dark Dancer. What did you think? Mm, yes, I definitely I completely agree. I mean, uh, logically based, it's, uh, it's a more concrete view of, I mean, if you look at the system right now, um, just having read the book, it, it just makes more sense than what the current system's at now. Mm. I wouldn't know what else to comment, and that just solely <coughs> comes from from when you look at the the at the whole text, like what you just read. Uh, it just makes a lot of sense, and that's what I just want to keep it at right now. Proxy. Well, basically saying that um, economics is a study of um, how um, society divvies up uh, divvies resources of scarcity. So that's all I can say. Thunder. Gregory, yeah. sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Everybody calls me Thunder. Um, yeah, I mean, short of, of echoing what, what all are, all the other people are saying, it, it, it is. It's the most logical um way to, to move forward and and we all know that that uh there was a point in time when people told the wright brothers you'll never fly that's impossible and and we're hearing this about uh this stuff now but and i want people to be clear that we're not advocating this as the perfect solution nothing is there's never going to be a perfect solution because things are always changing but but like you'll hear everybody say, this is so much better than what we have now. It just doesn't make sense to not look at this and move towards this um, from a logical standpoint. All right. Well, um, basically, for me, it just depends on, um, you know, I, I agree with everything that everybody here has said. And this first chapter is clearly just kind of a basic overview. Um, I know that a lot of people have a problem with this whole common heritage of all people thing, like they, they believe that certain people should be able to own critical resources that are valuable for the whole of humanity. And th the reason that bothers me is that, you know, I mean, it, you usually have to apply it to things like air. You know, what if somebody owned all the air? You know, would their property rights protect their rights to, you know, to you know, be able to prevent other people from being able to breathe the air? You know, uh, it's it's basically kind of a situation like this. As long as we continue to think of ourselves only as individuals, and I don't mean giving up individuality, as long as we think of ourselves as only individuals and only care about ourselves, inevitably you're going to have these situations that are going to be dangerous to not only yourself but to everybody else. And that's another aspect of it that I don't think people grasp, is that when you are doing things for the whole planet, you're still doing things for yourself. You're still representing yourself at that point. And if you don't do things for the whole planet, well, then you all are, are also hurting yourself eventually. You know, maybe not, you might not feel it right away, but inevitably down the road you're going to. You know, if you pollute the planet that you live on, and that, you know, let's not forget about the fact that you live there, inevitably the consequences are going to come to somebody. And mm -hmm. so, um, but uh, keeping all that in mind... And I hit everybody, and uh, I guess we will continue on to the next chapter, unless anybody else had something they wanted to say. Just a short comment here. Um, when, you, when you talk about danger and accept the pollution, uh, what, what else do you mean that's dangerous about individuality? 
Um, it, the only individual danger comes when one person thinks that they're so much more important than everybody else that they're willing to do things that endanger the whole of humanity. That's the only time you run into a problem. I remember arguing with one capitalist when I proposed a situation to him that said, well, what if you had on your land lived a resource that was necessary for the whole of humanity? You know, he's like, well, then it would be my right to sell it. I said, okay, now if you didn't give it up, you would kill the rest of the planet. And the guy basically said it would be better that the world was destroyed than to have his property rights taken away. That's when you run into a problem. It's not just, you know, and I don't advocate taking people's property either. It's just that the mentality of somebody to think that they have the right to withhold a resource that's on this planet that's required for all of humanity to survive, you know, really shows that some of these, people motiv these people's motivations are really just out of control. Um, and uh, does that answer your question? Surely, yes. And I have to say I, I totally agree with that, yes. When it's critical to humanity that that resource is um, available to everyone, then definitely there can be no restriction from it from any kind of view. So thank you for answering the question. Mm -hmm. All right. Chapter 2. Changing values in an emerging culture. Uh, once again, everybody, let's mute out so that this will sound better. Any attempt to depict the future direction of civilization must include a description of the probable evolution of our culture without embellishment, propaganda, or national interest. We must examine... Oops. It's like I lost my switchboard. Let's see if the call still connected. I apologize, people. Yeah, it looks like we're doing fine. I'll just bring up my switchboard again. But anyway... Um, once again, we'll go back to where we were. It is unfortunate... Oh, no, I'll go back to here. We must re-examine our traditional habits of thought if we wish to avoid the consequences that will occur if we do not prepare for the future. It is unfortunate that most of us envision this future within our present social framework using values and traditions that come from the past. Superficial changes perpetuate the problems of today. The challenges we, must, we face now cannot be addressed without antiquated notions and values that are no longer relevant. Imagine a new planet with the same carrying capacity as Earth and that you are free to design a new direction for the society on this planet. You can choose any shape or form. The only limitation imposed upon you is that this, your social design must correspond to the carrying capacity of that planet. This new planet has more than adequate arable land, clean air, and water, and an abundance of untapped resources. This is your planet. You can rearrange the entire social order to correspond to whatever you consider the best of all possible worlds. Not only does this include environmental modification, but also human factors, interpersonal relationships, and the structuring of education. This need not be complicated. It can be an uncluttered approach not burdened by any past or traditional considerations, religious or otherwise. This is prodigious project calling or this is a prodigious project calling for many disciplines, determining the way in, um, inhabitants of your planet conduct their lives, keeping in mind for whom and for what ends this social order is being designed. Feel free to transcend present realities and reach for new and inventive ideas to shape your world of the future. An exciting exercise, isn't it? What we propose is nothing more, nothing less, than applying that exercise to our planet. 
To prepare for the future, we must be willing to test new concepts. This means we must acquire enough information to evaluate these concepts and not be like travelers in a foreign land who compare everything with their own hometown. To understand people of another place, we must set aside our usual expectations of behavior and not judge by the values to which we are accustomed. If you believe today's values and virtues are absolute and ultimate for all times and all civilizations, then you may find our projection of the future shocking and unacceptable. We must feel and think as freshly as possible about the limitless possibilities of life patterns humankind may explore for attaining even higher levels of intelligence and fulfillment in the future. Although individuals like Plato, Edward Bellamy, H.G. Wells, Karl Marx, and Howard Scott have all made attempts to plan a new civilization, the established social order considered them impractical dreamers with utopian designs that ran contrary to human nature. Against these, these social pioneers was the status quo of vested interests comfortable with the way things were. The populace at large, because of years of indoctrination, went along unthinkingly for the ride. Vested interests were unappointed guardians of the status quo. The outlook and philosophy of the leaders were consistent with their positions of advantage. Despite advances achieved through objective scientific investigation, and the breaking down of long-standing fears and superstitions, the world is still not a reasonable place. Many attempts to make it so have failed because of selfish individual and national interests. Deeply rooted cultural norms that assume someone must lose for someone else to gain, scarcity at its most basic, still dictate most of our decisions. For example, we still cling to the concept of competition and accept inadequate compensation for people's efforts, i.e. the minimum wage, when such concepts no longer apply to our capabilities and resources, never mind their effect on human dignity and any possible elevation of the human condition. At this turning point in our civilization, we find problems complicated by the fact that many of us still wait for someone, a messiah perhaps, the elusive they, or an extraterrestrial to save us. The irony of this is that as we wait for someone to do it for us, we give up our freedom of choice and movement. We react rather than act towards events and issues. The future is our responsibility, but change will not take place until the majority lose confidence in their dictators and elected officials' ability to solve problems. It will likely take an economic catastrophe resulting in enormous human suffering to bring about true social change. Unfortunately, this does not guarantee that the change will be beneficial. In times of conflict between nations, we still default to answering perceived threats with threats, developing weapons of mass destruction, and training people to use them against others whom we regard as enemies. Many social reformers tried to solve problems of crime within the framework of the monetary system by building more prisons and enacting new laws. There was gun legislation and a three-times-and-year-out provision in an attempt to govern crime and violence. This has accomplished little, yet requests for funding to build more prisons and hire more policemen fare better in legislatures and voting referendums than do pleas for education or aid to the poor. Somehow, in an era of plenty, we have mainly approved punishment as an answer to all problems. One symptom of insanity is repeating the same mistake over and over again, expecting a different outcome. Our society is, in this sense, truly insane. 
The Manhattan Project developed the first atomic device to be used against human populations and launched the most intensive and dangerous weapon buildup in history. The Manhattan Project was also one of the largest and best financed projects ever undertaken. If we are willing to spend that amount of money, resources, and human lives in times of war, why don't we commit equal resources to improving lives and anticipating the humane needs of our future? The same energies that went into the Manhattan Project could be used to improve and update our way of life and to achieve and maintain the optimal symbiotic relationship between nature and humankind. If our system continues without modification involving, involving environmental and social concern, we will face an economic and social breakdown of our outworn monetary and political system. When this occurs, the established government will likely enact a state of emergency or martial law to prevent total chaos. I do not advocate this, but without the suffering of millions, it may be nearly impossible to shake our complacency about the current ways of life. Out of the Dark Ages Scientists in the space program face difficult challenges. For example, space scientists must develop new ways of eating in outer space. Astronauts' clothing must withstand the vacuum of outer space. Enormous temperature to rip differentials and radiation yet remain light in the repairing systems. Their challenge is to conceive of common items in completely new ways. In space, for example, clothing no longer functions as just body covering and adornment. It becomes a mini habitat. The space age is a good example of the search for newer and better ways of doing things. As scientists probe the limits of our universe, they must generate newer techniques and technologies for unexplored frontiers and never-before-encountered environments. If they cling to the concepts of their earlier training, their explorations will fail. Had our ancestors refused to accept new ideas, the physical sciences would have progressed little beyond the covered wagon. Many young engineers, scientists, and architects face this dilemma. Bold and creative, they exit institutions of higher learning and step out into the world eager for change. They set out with great enthusiasm, but are often beaten back and slowed by the established institutions and self-appointed guardians of tradition. Occasionally, some break away from traditional concepts and become innovators. They meet such tremendous resistance by antiquated building codes and other restrictions that their daring concepts are soon reduced to mediocrity. Many of the dominant values shaping our present society are medieval. The idea that we live in an enlightened age or an age of reason has little basis in fact. We are overwhelmed with valid information concerning ourselves and our planet but have no inkling of how to apply it. Most of our customs and modes of behavior have been handed down to us from the Dark Ages. It was difficult for early forms of life to crawl out of the primordial slime without dragging some of it with them. So it is with entrenched value systems. So it is with entrenched value systems. The most appropriate place for traditional concepts is a museum or in books about the history of civilization. The 21st century will reveal what most people never suspected, which is that the majority of us have the potential to be like people like Leonardo da Vinci, Alexander Graham Bell, and Madame Curie, if we are all, are all raised in an environment that encourages genuine individuality and creativity. This includes all other characteristics thought of as special and privileged heredity of the man, great men and women. Even in today's so-called democratic society, 
fewer than 4% of the world's people have supplied us with the scientific and artistic advances that sustain social systems. I'm going to pause at that part because it's a different part of the chapter, and we'll bring our panelists back. All right, everybody, unless I put you to sleep, <laughs> would you like to start, Azzy? Um, sure. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. I, I want to start off with saying that too many people prefer prepare for the future with current methods and ideology. Like examples of this are religious fundamentalists, and but I'm not talking about religious people in general. I'm talking about fundamentalists like uh, Osama bin Laden, Ted Haggard, George Herbert Walker Bush, and then you've got politicians as well who use outdated and current methods to prepare for the future, which also doesn't work. And then even the economy hasn't changed in quite a while. The principle that is. An example of the economy would be something like the future market, and I don't think that's the correct term, but it would be something like buying a good in the foreseeable future with a current price tag. So I'll buy oil from you in a year's time at 20 barrels to a dollar, some crazy amount, and you have to agree to that. When, and at the time, you have to pay for that, or I have to pay for that. So, you know, you're forced whichever way. So it's some crazy, you know, market such as that that can really, you know, destruct the whole economy. Um, also, I wanted to say stuff like too many people appoint other people to do the work that everyone should be doing, and too many people are afraid of power. And you know, I think Nelson Mandela says the same thing that too many people are afraid of their actual potential, and too many people are afraid of messing that potential and not using it to the correct way they actually wish to do in their mind. And too many people don't want to try anything, and they, fear is just the primary factor in our society today. And I also want to just point out that I don't really believe nuclear weapons are weapons of mass destruction. I, I believe rifles, machine guns, and handguns that are sold to countries, militias, and militaries are the real weapons of mass destruction. And I believe more lives have been lost to those than nukes, basically. Nukes are more potential weapons of mass destruction, and that's all I really wanted to say, unless you want to discuss anything. No, it sounds good to me. Dark Dancer? Mm, what I wanted to say on this subject is that, well, even though nukes are weapons of mass destruction, um, it's really just the people operating it. Like uh, what's been said in this chapter is that um, if the same effort would be put into uh, using the same resources that has been put into mass destruction weapons, um, I mean, you you'd have a total abundance of resources and it's just the monetary issues here that limit this. I mean, if you if you would put the same effort into gathering the resources for um, different things and different goals, then to put them into the weapons of mass destruction, we we would have a really large amount of resources available to us. And I think in general with the Venus project, that this is being pointed out very well and. That's really about the only thing on this chapter that that really grasped my attention. And I think it's the most important thing being made. Like, if you use the same resources being used for something else that's uh, rather uh, irrelevant to our uh, survival, then you could uh, produce something uh, that's... Uh, Really better for the for the for the humankind in as a whole. Okay, Proxy. 
Um, let's just say that we're born into a world of despair or a um, myth that we're born into a world of despair. As soon as we're brought into this place, we are taught such things as segregation. Um, uh, there's no such, well, we're taught not to freely express ourselves. We're taught to conform. We're taught to basically follow the current status quo or the t current ideals without innovation. And basically, we are also taught to fear innovation. So anything that's innovative is essentially um, blacklisted by the rest of society. There's also a, a whole list of things that we're taught to trust. And we're also taught to um, trust, say, the exponential growth of society, such as um, each year or each week we get um, the expected outcomes of the GDP growth, say 4% a year or 5% a year, without actually trying to figure out that how much resources are going to be utilized in constantly growing our economies. And I guess that's also an outcome of the monetary system and all sorts of stuff as new debt pays off old debt, hence we need to continually expand our money supply and on um, GDP of our nation. Um, and a huge lack of, um, well, there's a great lack of capital, such as human capital, in the areas of critical thinking, because we're often taught not to critically think. We're taught, as I said before, this is the world, that's the way it is, you can't do anything about it. However, we're also taught that millions of people around the world are dying of starvation, so on and so forth. Uh, we've got to do something about it so we donate to charities, but once again, we can't do anything about it because we're not taught to do anything about it. So perhaps people have some false hope or delusions, and a lot of these issues need to be addressed. That's my rant. Gregory? <laughs> they, all, they all, I agree with everybody. Uh, you know, um, the way humans are conditioned um, and have been conditioned for so many years to be living in fear. Um, even though they don't know it, they're blind to it. They're dumbed it down, as, every, as, as we've all heard. And as Jock says, you know, this transition is going to be difficult. You know, some people don't believe that it has to be difficult. Um, I happen to think maybe, you know, maybe it's... Uh, just inevitable that all this stuff has to fail and the slate has to literally be wiped clean, whatever that means for us to be able to start over. You brought up a good point that if we did, if we had another planet to inhabit and we were able to start fresh, you know, that would probably give us a step up in the right direction. It's so difficult to present these ideas to people that have been so conditioned uh, um, to live in this fear and, and present day thinking and that's I know you'll agree that most of the resistance that we come up against is people that are I guess again afraid to look at this because they only have the perspective of present day ideas and present day um, morals and values and, and they don't have enough foresight um, to look at this more in a futuristic uh, way. So that's really all I have to say at this point. Well, um, I'm going to comment a little bit, and then Proxy had something else they wanted to say. Uh, I think what point he's trying to get at when he talks about the Manhattan Project is the fact that um, 
people came together, the country came together in mass to do this wonderful thing of, well, <laughs> wonderful as far as an achievement in science, not exactly wonderful in its application, but of being able to split the atom, uh, applying a theory of relativity and actually making it into reality. Now, imagine what would happen if we as a nation had come together instead and said, we're going to make sustainable, clean energy for the whole world. You know, imagine that, you know, it, it's just basically when you really study the Manhattan Project, the amount of effort and resources that was put into that project was just astounding. The, the great minds that they put together for it was also astounding. And I think that he's just calling for the people of the world to do the same thing. Now, Proxy, go ahead. I was just uh, going on from a point that Gregory was talking about, about social conditioning. Um, we're also conditioned out of fear to fight for the current system, to um, fight to remain things constant as they are. And that will be a, a very large issue to um, deal with um, during the transition period because there's going to be on a, a lot of people fighting for, say, um, what's not best for them. Um, that's basically what I wanted to say. All right, then, unless anybody else had anything to say, I'm going to move on to the next part of Chapter 2. Go ahead. All right, then. And um, once again, to our listeners, um, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to V Radio. Uh, today we are reading from the book, The Best That Money Can't Buy, Beyond Politics, Poverty, and War. Uh, if you're looking at my show on um, Blog Talk Radio, you will see that there are pictures of books that are basically moving past the screen. Uh, one of them is obviously The Best of Money Can't Buy. Uh, the other one is the DVD. Uh, I believe it's called The Future by Design. Um, and the last book is actually a recommended read for anybody who wants to understand how the monetary system has created so many problems in this world in regards to war. It's called Addicted to War, and I strongly advise it to anybody who is interested in the subject because it really opened my eyes to just how deep the military-industrial complex really goes when it comes to creating new, you know, new excuses for war. Um, and uh, all right, that being said, I'm going to mute everybody out again, and we will get on to the next part of this book. Okay. Shaping human lives. Humans of the future, similar, though similar in appearance, will differ considerably in their outlook, values, and mindset. Social orders of the past that have continued in, into the 21st century consistently seek to generate loyalty and conformity to established institutions as the only means to sustain a workable society. Countless laws, often passed after a misdeed has occurred, have been enacted in an attempt to govern the conduct of people. Those who do not conform are ostracized or imprisoned. In the past, many social reformers and those called agitators by the detractors were not generally angry, maladjusted individuals. They were often people with a sensitivity and concern for the needs of others who envisioned a better life for all. Among these were abolitionists, advocates for women's suffrage, and child labor laws, those who practiced nonviolent resistance to oppression and so-called freedom fighters. Today we accept without question the achievements of these reformers who faced violent opposition, imprisonment, ridicule, 
and even death from vested interests in the established order. Unfortunately, most people are unaware of the identities of those individuals who helped pave the way towards social enlightenment. Today we accept, I'm sorry, many of our parks have statues of warriors and statesmen, but few have any monuments to the really great social innovators. Perhaps when the history of the human race is finally written, it will be from the viewpoint of individuals in an alien and primitive culture who sought change in a world that had great tenacity to maintain things as they were. Conformity in a population makes control of society much easier for its leaders. Our leaders pay lip service to the freedoms that democracy provides while actually supporting an economic structure that imprisons its citizens under more and more debt. They claim that they have, that all have the opportunity to rise to the top through individ, individual initiative and incentive. To appease those who work hard but do not achieve the good life, religion is then there to assure them that if this not in this life, they will obtain it in the next life. Our habits of thought and conduct show the effectiveness of constant and unrelenting propaganda on radio, television, in publications, and in most other media. They are so effective that the average citizen is not insulted when categorized as a consumer, as if a citizen's sole worth to society was a user of goods. These patterns are gradually being modified and challenged by the Internet and the World Wide Web. Most people expect that our televisions, computers, communication systems, methods of production and delivery of services, and even our concepts of work and reward will continue to improve without any disruption or distress within our present value systems. But this is not necessarily so. Our dominant values that emphasize competition and scarcity limit continued progress. The most disruptive period in a transition from an established social order to an emergent system comes when people are not prepared emotionally or intellectually to adjust to change. People cannot simply relate, erase all beliefs and habits acquired in the past, which constitute their self-identity. Sudden changes in values without some preparation will cause many to lose their sense of identity and purpose, isolating them from society as they feel they have passed, uh, I'm sorry, isolated them from a society they feel has passed them by. Another factor limiting the evaluation of alternative social proposals is a lack of understanding of basic scientific principles and the factors shaping human culture and behavior. The conflicts today between human beings are about opposing values. If we manage to arrive at a saner future, conflicts will be about problems common to all humans. In a vibrant and emergent culture, instead of conflicts between nations, the challenges will be overcoming scarcity, reclaiming damaged environments, creating innovative technologies, increasing agricultural yield, improving communications, building communications between nations, sharing technologies, and living a meaningful life. Work and the New Leisure From early civilizations to the present, most humans had to work to earn a living. Most of our attitudes about work are a carryover from these earlier times. In the past, and still in many low-energy cultures, it was necessary to fetch water and carry it to one's dwelling place. People gathered wood to make fires for heating and cooking, and fuel to burn in their lamps. 
It would have been very difficult, and still is for some, to imagine a time when water would rush forth in your own dwelling at the turn of a handle to press a button for instant light would have seemed like magic. People of ancient times probably wondered what they would do with their time if they did not have to engage in these burdensome tasks that were so necessary to sustain their lives. In most developed countries, tasks that were once so vital to people's very survival are no longer necessary thanks to modern technology. Today, people attend schools to acquire marketable skills that enable them to earn a living in the workaday world. Recently, the belief that one must work to earn a living has been challenged. Working for a living to supply the necessities of life may soon be irrelevant, as modern technology can provide most of these needs. As a result, many jobs have gone the way of the Iceman and the elevator operator. Perhaps we have a semantic problem with the word work. The idea of freedom from work should include the elimination of repetitive and boring tasks that hold back our intellectual growth. Most jobs, from blue-collar assembly worker to professional, entail repetitious and uninteresting tasks. Human beings possess an untapped potential that they will finally be able to explore once they are free of the burden of having to work to earn a living. At present, there are no plans in government or industry to make economic adjustments to deal with the displacement of people by automated technology. It is no longer the repetitious work of laborers that CyberNation is able to phase out, but also many other vocations and professions, engineers, technicians, scientists, doctors, architects, artists, and actors will all have their roles altered or sometimes drastically Therefore, it is imperative that we explore alternatives so as to improve our social constructs, beliefs, and quality of life to secure and sustain a future for all. That was the end of Chapter 2. I'm going to bring my panelists back on. And um, this time, we're actually going to start in reverse order. Gregory, you're up. <laughs> Are you, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure. I just heard a, something come on my ears here. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot to comment on that on that section, so why don't you go ahead and go to somebody else for right now. Daddy. <laughs> it looks like my daughter wanted to add something. Well, by all means, all right. let her add something. <laughs> yeah, it won't be a problem. Anyway, um, all right, Dark Dancer, you're up next. All right, thank you. Yes, there are a few things in this chapter I would like to address. Um, first off, there was um, a small remark about uh, the well humanity as a whole, like where like conflicts would be a matter of of like humanity as a whole. But I I'd say like from my point of view that it would be underestimating groups a little because. Uh, conflicts, how, no matter how large or small they are, um, I think that even in small communities, conflicts can can grow a lot. I don't know if you're gras grasping what I'm trying to say here, but uh, even though uh, problems uh, that uh, skill, skill humanity as a whole can be of, of very large importance, I mean, Problems at a community level can be um, uh, very large as a whole as well, and I think that this chapter was 
trying to represent that at a at a at a smaller level level that it that and that it actually is. Also, it's uh, it has uh, notified us of the fact that there's a um, continuation of grout, and I think that the that if you if you take grout in consideration that there's an expectation that the economic growth is going forward as it is right now. But if you take a closer look at economic graphs and if you research the whole, um, if you research the growth as a whole, like resources-wise, economics-wise, there's no reasonable uh, argument that the economic uh, growth is going to continue as it is. Uh, also, um, there's the talk about incentives, and that's the whole thing that worries me about the Venus project as a whole. Um, nevertheless, it's a great idea, but people uh, that are conditioned this way, they are used to incentives, like a wage is an incentive right now. And the uh, main concern people have with the Venus project right now is that when we have a, um, I wouldn't call it utopian, but uh, a far better world right now is that people won't have anything to do right now uh, where, where they would normally have something to do with what we call today See, as I work. I don't agree with that. I have to jump in there. I, I think okay, what, what's, what's missing here, and this is we hear this so much, well, what will people have to do? And again, it's based on present-day thinking. If I don't have a job to go to, if I don't, you know, have some way to go out there and earn a living, what will I do? It's 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 frustrating because you can't keep thinking the old ways when you're talking about something new, um, because it just gets poisoned. Will people have incentive? Absolutely, they'll have incentive to do something else. In other words, when you eliminate the jobs and you eliminate the incentive, if you will, for lack of a better term, to go out and earn a living, to buy things, when that all disappears, brand new incentives will come about. It's like, again, you can't put, what's this, how does the saying go? You can't put new wine into old wineskins. It, it, it won't work. So well, yeah. new oh, incentives will come up. Let me let me uh, actually tap in a little bit because I think you and I covered this pretty well on your show not long ago, Gregory, was just the fact right. that, that the myth that incentive is based on doing repetitively boring jobs. I, I certainly have no incentive to go to work. My incentive was kind of beaten out of me when I was a kid. I wanted to be an astronaut. That's when I had true incentive. That's when I wanted to do something for the right reasons, not because I had to. Um, and it's that natural creative incentive that's the one that I think that needs to be cultivated. And, and Jacques covers that quite a bit in uh, the part of the chapter of his book that's about how we raise children in a Venus Project society. Now, um, did you have something more to say on that, Dark Panther? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, I definitely see where you're coming from, but um, what, we're, what, we're, what we have to consider is that we have a transition period here. Like, you're presenting it as if... Uh, Today is the current society, and tomorrow is the uh, society which is uh, applying the ide ideology of the Venus Project. 
But in a transition period, you have to be able to convince people that uh, you don't need the same incentives as you have today. How are you going to do that? How are you going to make clear to them that you don't need the same incentives that you have today in the world of tomorrow? Well, I would I don't think it's going to be... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. I would answer that by pointing out that um, the majority of real incentives end up getting kind of taken out of people. Um, what, what's going to give people new incentives is the fact that, you know, education will be free. People will be free to explore and to do whatever they want. That's actually something that they talk about in addition when you're raising your children. There's a time in a child's life where they want to explore things, they want to look at things, and nowadays we give them SpongeBob and Barney through that phase, so needless to say they don't really come away from that phase learning a whole lot. When I was a kid, my mother wouldn't let me watch stuff like that. She made me watch things like The Electric Company and Sesame Street, uh, Nova, uh, things of that nature, and it led me to actually to be very far ahead you know, of other kids in my class. I actually got bored with modern education because of it. Um, and, uh, but you know, I guess how, where do these incentives come from? A lot of it just has to do with the fact that, first of all, um, as they pointed out, only about 5% of the population of the Earth is even required to maintain a Venus Project society. So at that point, it doesn't really matter how many people have it. I know a lot of people, for example, you know, I have friends of mine who are carpenters because they enjoy building stuff. You know, I have friends of mine who are um, even architects and artists, you know, who obviously artists are obvious, but you know, architects who are interested in designing things, and they'll just sit around doing it for hours. You know, and so... You know, bearing that in mind, did you have something further to say, Gregory, before I turn it over to Proxy? No, that's right. And, and I, I, again, just to reiterate, when you, when you start eliminating all these things that we think we have to do, new things come up that we will want to do. And somebody actually said something really good in the chat. They said, this is what you do when you can't figure out what to do. You explore new things and places, meet new friends. You, you just do other things. You travel, have fun and live to the fullest that you can. So again, when, you're, when all these negative um, whatever, things are eliminated from our lives, new things will come into play we, that we will desire. And, and, and that's what I don't think people can understand that. They, they are too short-sighted to understand when you eliminate this, something's got to fill that void. And the new stuff that will fill that void will be based on this resource-based economy. And it's all going to be good. It's, it's not going to be perfect, but it's, again, so much way, way, way better than what we've got now. And I, I wish people would wake up and just understand that simple concept. All right. Um, now, Dark Dancer, did you have one more reply, I believe you said? Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, what... What I was about to reply is that, well, the what the point of view you're, you're coming from the, the fact that you are uh, privileged to a good education and a, uh, you're being brought up with certain values that allow you to um, investigate more than what other people uh, are privileged to. I mean, you said that your mother has. Um, presented you to certain views and that you could investigate things for yourself but you have to remember um, not to be blunt or anything but a lot of the people in this world are really just conditioned to the curtain um, conditions and those conditions just uh, don't allow for 
things outside of the box, if you grasp what I mean. Uh, well, those, consider that a lot of those limitations about not being able to get out of the box have to do with the situation that we live in. Um, people who get out of prison don't always remain in prison. I mean, mind you, a lot of those people in many cases have a lot of, you know, have a hard time adjusting to the new world. But for the most part, I can tell you that, you know, I'm certainly not going to have any problem getting out of the box. I know plenty of people who would be more than willing to give up their stupid jobs in order to go travel the world and, you know, get educated and things of that nature. But let me get our other panelists in here. Um, Proxy, you're up. What did you have to say about the last chapter? Oh, I think I have many things to say. Um, I'll start off with my first comment about prison, and that is you don't get to eat fruit in prison. And I think that is a very big issue because I know, you wouldn't want to go to prison because you can't eat fruit, and fruit's pretty damn awesome. Um, i got more bizarreities to talk about. Um, um, the beginning of the chapter, I spoke about some sort of um, an idealistic um, segregation, and um, I recently came across some information that the head of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1800s, the same guy who... Um, uh, started the American Civil War. He has a statue devoted to him. So I'm just thinking, um, why does this uh, rampant racist uh, and the guy that who started the American Civil War have, have a statue devoted to him? Though um, we also ask many questions like that. Also have another basic comment which I came across hundreds of times, and that is more power can be wielded through an idea than any weapon. Um, now, we're talking about, well, you guys are basically talking about the creation of identity. And I'm just going to um, spout Maslow's hierarchy of needs, because Maslow is pretty damn awesome, and he's dead, so he won't really mind me ripping off his ideas or talking about them. And uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs creates a pyramid structure system, which has five tiers. The first tier is called physiological, which is your first lot of needs, and that's breathing, food, water, sex, sleep, homeostasis, and excretion. The second tier is called safety, so that includes security of body, of employment, of resources, of morality, of the family, of health, and of property. The third tier is love and belonging, so that includes your friendship, family, and sexual intimacy, the fourth tier is um, esteem, self-esteem, confidence, achievement, respect of others, and respect by others. And the last tier is called self-actualization, or aka self-respect, which includes your morality, creativity, spontaneity, problem-solving, lack of prejudice, and acceptance of facts. And it seems that under a resource-based economy um, projected through the Venus Project is that basically everyone starts off at tier three, love and belonging, because the first two tiers are insignificant because technology provides for them. So the once again, the third tier starts off as friends, friendship, family, sexual intimacy. And Maslow spoke about once you achieve the needs and wants of the below tiers, you move up to the higher tiers and you reestablish your sense of identity. So basically, um, through Maslow's works, he says that people will continually move up the tiers depending on their current needs and wants and how they're being satisfied. So um, inherently, um, I'm spouting a lot of Maslow, that most people will move up 
to the last tier of self-actualization or self-respect of morality, creativity, spontaneity, problem-solving, lack of prejudice, and acceptance of facts. So that is the greatest benefit of the Venus Project, is enabling people to actually actualize and um, be well aware of their own potential. Um, we, you guys talked a lot about incentive, and um, I am one different from majority of the population. I uh, mirror uh, VTV's um, past. Um, when I was four years old, I rather watched a documentary on, say, um, the A Brief History in Time by Stephen Hawking, something like that, than rather watch Sesame Street or something. Like, when I was four years old, I taught myself Japanese off TV. Um, and that's basically what I'm talking about. Oh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a supreme military commander because all I did when, from ages 6 to 14 was play StarCraft Online. And that's all I have to say on this topic. Brings us to Azzy. Uh, did you manage to stay awake through all that, Azzy? <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, I don't know what I can add after Proxy. He summed up a lot of things that I was going to uh, bump into, but he mentioned uh, a name, so it's hard to get over that. But um, I was going to talk a little bit on incentives that, um, you know, I think someone commented there that the people, um, where is it? Let me just check this. Is it Dragon? Dragon up there? Uh, I don't know if I can pronounce it. I'm not too good at pronunciation, but it's the people that don't understand the incentives that are the hardest to get through, like the people who will just uh, piggyback off the rest of society. How do you get them? to do anything and uh, it kind of revolves around a question where a friend had a critical analysis of it and he said well what about teachers they're not going to teach they hate teaching what about firemen they're not going to uh, you know put out fires in your house they're not going to risk their lives and they says they need money for that and I thought about that and I came to the conclusion well teachers don't get that much good pay do they they're not even near reasonable at times yet they have a really difficult job of um, you know Tell, telling and educating the uh, the up-and-coming politicians, the possible astronauts, the possible anything. They, they're in this stage of, you know, a critical stage of people's lives where it's uh, their education that can affect them. But that's difficult work. That's really difficult work to teach. You, you, you have to be that kind of person that's good at, and very patient. But what I'm saying is that um, they're not influenced for mo through money for that. They're influenced their own personal means because if they were influenced from money as an incentive they, then they could have studied something else in college or university that gave them three times the pay who knows but they didn't pick that and firemen most are voluntary I, I like to point out as well most are voluntary um, they also have a, a lot of ambulance services are firemen I don't know if you guys know that most of what you hear the ambulance sirens are fire fire brigades so I'm saying that they do a lot of community work and a lot of it's just voluntary and even at that, if they do get paid, um, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Why would someone get, you know, low average pay to go into a flaming building to save people? It's not the money because money, when you think about it, only what it is, is an access to resources. So if you can give those resources to people without having a stupid medium that's made out of thin air like money, then... Yeah, you basically got your incentive solved in a nutshell, but then again, a proxy dived into it a, a much, much deeper and gave a better analysis. So that's basically what I have to say, unless you have any questions. 
no, I think that basically covers it. Um, I, I would also uh, add to the point that you were bringing up, and I think I brought this up on one of our Ventrilo podcasts, was that uh, the conversation I had with the police officer, I said, you know, I really think that you guys deserve a pay raise. And he's like, you know, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but I don't really want to do that. And he's like, why? You know, I said, I'm like, why? He's like, well, to be honest with you, I mean, if I had to go out and risk my life with somebody who was only there because it was a, you know, had a good paycheck, I wouldn't feel, I wouldn't feel comfortable. I wouldn't want that person, you know, as my partner. Right. You know, I wouldn't want that person anywhere near me uh, in that kind of situation. And honestly, the monetary system and the profit motive, you talk about what people do for money and how it affects their quote-unquote incentive. Uh, study the education system. I watched a really good documentary about the uh, modern education system because, you know, I was curious, of course, as a capitalist, okay, well, they all say that we should get rid of public schools because they're socialists. We should have, you know, we should just have every, you know, every school should just be private schools. And so I studied, you know, colleges because I wanted to learn a little bit about what that would be like. And, well, what I found out was that professors actually don't get paid any extra for being good teachers. In fact, they tell professors, um, well, if you, fi- if you fail too many people, we will fire you because we don't really care if they're competent. We just want our money. And if you fail people, well, then they, you know, they leave college and they don't come back and we don't get our tuition. So for the most part, just uh, let them slide. You know? And that's why, especially in the United States, the colleges have a huge reputation for being little more than just a place to go party and drink and you know, screw your way through your, you know, your college years before you get out into the workforce. And that's an example of what happens when, when, when profit is used as an incentive, it doesn't produce quality at all. It, where do you think all this plan obsolescence comes from? And it's the same concept, actually, with employees. In many cases, especially in a drudgery job that people hate, you know, employees, you know, give their own plan obsolescence and the fact that they're going to do as little work as possible and they're going to, you know, do everything they can to get away with doing as little as possible because they don't want to be there. You know, in comparison to the volunteers who do these things because they're interested in them, those people are going to do their best because they want to do their best. You know, I mean, think about it. You know, you talk about, like, you know, competitiveness as being an incentive. You know, uh, there's actually a very good movie called October Sky, and it's about um, a guy who grew up in the south, the deep south of the United States, which is, you know, historically supposedly a place of low, you know, education. And they were all like the sons of coal miners. And this one child just decided, you know what, I've had enough of this. I'm not going to do this. I want to, you know, I want to participate in the science fair. And he built a he built a rocket. And that kid ended up going to um, NASA when he was finished. Um, awesome and that's movie. An example. Awesome movie. Yeah. You know, that's an example of incentive. And that kid, you know, a lot of people tried to dissuade him. They're like, no, 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 you should just go to work in the mines just like your dad. You know, the, you know that's an example of how the monetary system tries to kill your incentive. They tried to prevent that, discourage that kid from doing what he was doing. You know, and the same thing is true of a lot of people. I mean, um, when Edison went to school, they, they mistreated him so badly, his mother took him out of school and homeschooled him. Okay, you know, and that's just, I mean... Basically, you get the idea is that um, it particularly, like I said in the show that I had with you, Gregory, when you're a kid, they actually kind of beat the incentive out of you. Being smart and innovative, using big words, that's a reason to get beat up in school. You know, I know. Right. <laughs> I, I went to school. I, I, love jock, I love Jock's story of, of, of going to school and what happened to him. I, I, I could listen to that over and over. I, I think that is so inspirational. I, I hope those more people of, get a chance to listen to that story. 
for those of our listeners who haven't heard that story, since I was told that story directly when I met him, um, I will relate it briefly, and then we will get on with our discussion. But um, basically, Jacques was at school, and I believe it started with him not wanting to pledge allegiance to the flag. And uh, so they took him to the uh, principal's office, and the principal told the teacher she could leave, and he kind of put his arm around him. He's like, so why don't you want to pledge allegiance to the flag? And Jacques said, I don't want to be a citizen of just one country. I want to be a citizen of the whole world. And so he talked to him about his education and the different things about it, and he said to him, he's like, you know, I don't really think we have a place for you here, so here's what I'm going to do. You know, they roped off a section of the class just for him. They let him read whatever books he wanted to read and study whatever he wanted to study. And, you know, the end result is, oh, well, imagine that. We have a Jacques Fresco, somebody who's a free-thinking, innovative, creative thinker, because one adult decided to take it upon himself to be a positive influence in Jacques' life and encourage his real incentive. Um, in addition to that, you know, like later on in the story, he ends up kind of just, he gets to a point actually where the principal eventually passed away and they didn't let him uh, have class the way that he had, was, you know, had grown accustomed to, so he just stopped going to school. And um, eventually the truant officer found him and said, you know, well, I can't have you not going to school. He's like, well, you know, what do you do with your time? He's like, well, I go to the library and I check out the books about things that I want to read. And he's like, really? He's like, yeah, you know, I educate myself and I do you know, a lot of experiments in my lab. He's like, you have a lab? You know, he's like, yeah, it's at home. He's like, can I see it? He's like, sure, just don't tell my mother who you are. Because he didn't want his mother to know that he wasn't going to school. So um, he takes him there and he shows him the lab and he's like, Wow. Yeah. Well. Okay. Well. You know what? I approve of what you're doing. So, um, just show up at school on Monday, and then you can go back to playing hooky if you want. <laughs> and that was the kind of education that created Jacques Fresco. And the reason why education is related to incentive is that the incentive that you're given in school essentially is to become a robot. That's not real incentive. And if you don't do that, well, then they'll beat you down until you do it. So. That, that was pretty much what I had to say on that part of the, um, the conversation. Um, I am going to return to reading the book. We are now on to Chapter 3, Language of Relevance. I'm going to ask my panelists once again to mute themselves so that I can continue reading. And um, we're going to get this show on the road. By the way, guys, I want to ask real quick um, before I mute everybody, how is uh, my sound quality? Am I sounding good while I'm reading this book? It's uh, good for me. Excellent. Fine. Uh, you might want to mute um, Gregory. Yeah, I usually do. <laughs> All right, let's get on to Chapter 3. By the way, we're now an hour and ten minutes into our show. Chapter 3, Language of Relevance. Of the many entrenched barriers to positive change, communication is one of the most intricable, or intractable, my apologies, Language has evolved over centuries through ages of scarcity, superstition, and social insufficiency, and it is continuing to evolve. Sorry about that. However, language often contains ambiguity and uncertainty when important issues are at stake and fails to use a precise and universally intelligible means of conveying knowledge. Conveying knowledge, sorry. It is difficult for the average person, or even those considered above average, including leaders of nations, 
to share ideas with others whose worldview may be considerable at a considerable variance with their own. Also, because of semantic differences and different experiences, words have various shades of meaning. What would happen if we made contact with an alien civilization when we have such difficulty making contact with our fellow human beings? We are not ready for that. We haven't yet learned to resolve international differences by peaceful methods, so peace is simply a pause between wars. Even in the United States, supposedly the most technologically advanced country in the world, we lack a unified, definitively stated direction. Our policies and goals are fragmented and contradictory. The Democrats cannot communicate meaningfully with the Republicans. Elsewhere, the Israelis oppose the Arabs. The Irish Catholics clash with the Irish Protestants the Serbs, with the Muslims. Everywhere there is an interracial and interpersonal disharmony, an inability of husbands and wives to communicate with each other or their children, labor and management strife, and communists differing with capitalists. How then could we hope to establish any meaningful communication with an alien civilization, with beings possessing intelligence, social coherence, and technologies far in advance of our own? the aliens might well wonder whether there really is any intelligent life on Earth. <laughs> Most world leaders seek to achieve greater communication and understanding among the nations of the world. Unfortunately, their efforts have met with little success. One reason is that each comes to the table determined to achieve the optimal advantage for their own nation. We talk a lot about global development and global cooperation but the global in each case reflects the individual nation's interests and not those of all people. In addition, we are trapped within old ways of looking at our world. While most agree change is necessary, many limit change if it threatens their advantage, just as on a personal basis they seek change in others, but not in themselves. Many of us lack the skills to communicate logically when we are emotionally invested in an outcome. If a person or group has difficulty in communicating a point in question, rather than seek clarification, they will raise their voices. If this does not produce the desired effect, they may include profanity or intimidating language. If this doesn't work, they may resort to physical violence, punishment, or deprivation as a means of achieving the desired behavior. In some instances, deprivation of the means of earning a living has been and continues to be used. These tactics have never produced a heightened level of understanding. In fact, many of these attempts to control behavior actually increased violence and drove the parties farther apart. It will be difficult for a future historian to understand why the language of science and technology was not incorporated into everyday communication. Ambiguity may help lawyers, preachers, and politicians, but it doesn't work in building bridges, dams, power projects, flying machines, or in space travel. For these activities, we need the language of science. Despite a maze of ambiguity in normal conversation, the more serviceable language of science is coming into use throughout the world, particularly in technologically advanced countries. If communication is to improve, we need a language that correlates highly with the environment and the human needs. We already have such a language in the scientific and technological communities, and it's easily understood by many. In other words, it is already possible to use a coherent means of communication without ambivalence. If we apply the same methods used in the physical science to psychology, sociology, and the humanities, a lot of unnecessary conflict could be resolved. 
In engineering, mathematics, chemistry, and other technical fields, we have the nearest thing to a universal descriptive language that requires little in the way of individual interpretation. For instance, if a blueprint for an automobile is used in any technologically developed society anywhere in the world, the finished product would be the same as that in any other areas receiving the same blueprint regardless of their political or religious beliefs. The language used by the average person is inadequate for resolving conflict, but the language of science is relatively free of ambiguities and the conflicts prevalent in our everyday, emotionally driven language. It is deliberately designed, as opposed to evolving haphazardly through the centuries of cultural change, to state problems in terms that are verifiable and readily understood by most. Most technical strides would have been unattainable without this type of improved communication. Without a common descriptive language, we would have been able to pre unable to prevent disease, increase crop yields, talk over thousands of miles, or build bridges, dams, transportation systems, and the many other technological marvels of this computerized age. Unfortunately, the same is not true of conversational language. Attempts to discuss or evaluate newer concepts in social design are greatly limited by our habit of comparing newer concepts to existing systems and beliefs. It's a semantic jungle out there. Utopian ideals have existed for as long as humans have dealt with problems and reflected upon a world free of them. The writers of scriptural references to Eden, Plato's Republic, H.G. Wells' Shape of Things to Come, and such concepts as socialism, communism, democracy, and the ultimate expression of bliss, heaven, have all shared this utopian dream. All attempts at creating such a world have fallen far short of their vision because the dreamers and visionaries who projected their utopian concepts did so mostly within the framework of values of their existing cultures. The language they used was limited and subject to a wide range of individual interpretation. When we read and discuss new ideas, the information is automatically filtered through previous experiences and patterns of associative memory. In many instances, what we end up with is something other than the designers intended. Unfortunately, we live in a linguistic and semantic jungle. The language we inherited is insufficient and lacks the characteristics needed to allow ideas to be shared. Here's an historical example. When presented with the possibility of transitioning from conventional aircraft to the flying wing during World War II, now employed very effective in the B-1 stealth bomber, people first noticed the absence of the tail assembly. This new configuration, so different from the conventional, made them uncomfortable and reactions were generally negative. Even technical people questioned the lack of stability believed to be inherent in the flying wing. They responded with doubt and hostility. Had they used the appropriate language of investigation, they would instead have asked the designer how he intended to overcome the limiting factors in the earlier designs. The designer would have responded by presenting design specifications and better yet, working models on the subject under discussion. To discuss the redesign of a culture, not utopian, but simply in accordance with the knowledge and resources we have at hand, we must learn to outgrow our egos in exchange for constructive dialogue rather than debate. In addition, we must be capable of stating problems and, prop and proposing solutions clearly and succinctly, without distortion of meaning or misunderstanding even when these solutions are radically opposed to accepted norms. Changing language. 
Language evolves along with people and their culture. With the development of newer technologies, our everyday language changes accordingly. But today, our technology and culture are so pervasive that we need a language with more uniform meaning than throughout the world. We need something like mathematics, a language that avoids semantic differences in interpretation. This new language should have symbols which closely approximate real events in the physical world. An advanced descriptive language will eventually be designed by artificial intelligence and then continuously updated to remain relevant to existing and new situations. As it becomes increasingly obvious that goals must be stated precisely, our language will undergo considerable modification. The future evolution of our language cannot be comprehended within the bounds of existing usage. It must undergo continuing refinement and increase its scope of meaning before it will be an effective means of communication between people. Gutenberg invented the printing press before the English alphabet and spelling had stabilized. Many of our language's idiosyncrasies still endure from those early days of experimentation. No sophistication of phrasing or vocabulary alters the fact that different words, and even the same words in different sequences, have so many possible interpretations. Their semantic connotations differ from sender to receiver and from receiver to others. Our language has an amazing richness and flexibility and easily accommodates change. But in the absence of mathematical precision, clear communication is a challenge. The future language may transcend words as we know them in favor of a series of sounds sequentially arranged to produce a desired response in others. Language is often an attempt to control behavior through the transfer of information, valid, invalid, or even irrelevant to the situation. In the future, people using computers could create a language that would provide closer understanding in a simple, simpler structure with less dependence on speech. For example, a series of signals combining acoustical, optical, olfactory, and teletactile electronic patterns will tell a story in seconds rather than in many sentences or pages. Such a methodology is not unlike that used by fish to find the Aronaco River sorry, when it's thousands of miles away from their starting point and they haven't been there before. Fish have receptors that sense the Earth's magnetic field which to a large extent shapes their behavior. In like manner, imprinting in a bird prob probably elicits the nest, pattern, nest, nest building pattern. When our technologies are more closely aligned with natural law, airplanes might use geomagnetic fields for navigation, just like birds. A clearer, more efficient means of communicating would entail a more exact expression in verbal communication. It could encourage a new area of science, the science of significance and meaning. A more refined language could result in a rearrangement of the associative systems in the human brain, resulting in greater understanding and reduction in conflict. Bridges over troubled words. A myth is a concept or tale that has no factual evidence or proof. The word suggests a way of talking or stating problems in which the words used to do, I'm sorry, used to do not have a physical reference. That is to say, one cannot find agreement among people as to what, in the real world, the word's actually referring to. In this context, the author fears the idea of resolving conflicts on the basis of mutual understanding is a myth as well. For example, the likelihood of Jewish people resolving their conflict with Nazis through a free exchange of views is extremely remote, if not impossible. 
The same would be true if a well-educated African-American attempted to resolve a conflict with the white supremacist organizations or a scientist tried sharing a theory of evolution with religious fundamentalists. This illustrates that humans, as yet, are not rational beings. Our current values of right and wrong, or good and bad, are the products of older social systems. Slogans and catchphrases like God is on our side, think American, successful person, well-adjusted, mature outlook, and sharing ideas are all judgments and assessments reflecting the culture in which they originated. If we genuinely hope to bridge differences, we need a more precise language and a mindset open to new ideas. Actually, there is no sharing of values and no communication at all if the parties don't have a common starting point or are unwilling, unable to conceive of experiences outside their own. If a person believes that it is impossible to build a flying machine, the builder of a flying machine cannot share his or her knowledge about the idea, especially if the doubting party doesn't ask how it can be accomplished or has already dismissed it in his or her mind. How then in a society that is culture-bound and has limited language and ideals can we introduce concepts of a future society with values and ideals far different from the present? How can we introduce listeners to a new concepts which, even if they desire to learn them, have no connections in their experience and thinking? We live in a perpetual show-me state. When Nikola Tesla first introduced the wireless, there was no common understanding of the methods and dynamics of wireless transmission. So Tesla oriented the uninformed, I'm sorry, oriented the, yeah, the uninformed through a demonstration of the working processes. In like manner, films, books, seminars, videos, and ultimately a working prototype of a new city system based on a new social direction will be necessary to demonstrate the validity of our proposals. All right. I'm going to bring my panelists back. That's the end of chapter of that chapter. I'm going to start with you, Azzy. What did you think about the chapter about communication? Uh, I don't really have anything to add to it, um... I don't feel I should comment on things I don't either fully understand or completely agree with. But I do have um, one thing to add, if that's all right. It's, um, uh, when he was oh. talking about, say, the uh, Catholic-Protestant thing with the Belfast, uh, uh, there was a man walking down uh, Belfast in the mid-70s once, and he was grabbed from behind and pulled into a dark alleyway. The man who pulled him into the alleyway had a balaclava on and put a pistol to his head, and he said, Catholic or Protestant? So the man, kneeling on the ground, crying, thought to himself and said, aha, I'll fool them. And he said, neither, I'm Jewish. So the person with the Bataclava <laughs> cocked his gun and said, I must be the luckiest Arab in the city. <laughs> anyway, oh, I'm going to have to take a two-minute break. I should be back before you sound to the next section. That's all I wanted to add. Okay. Thanks a lot, Ezzy. Dark Dancer, you're up. <laughs> yeah, I just have to say, uh, you, you made me laugh real good there, Azzy. <laughs> All right, well, on to more serious business then. Um, in, in this uh, chapter, there was a small remark about the Arabs and the Israelis. Uh, I kind of have a question for uh, the fellow uh, panelists, since I seem to be the only one that's had a lot of questions about the Venus Project in general. Like, if you take the current political situation in Israel and the Arab world, and specifically the Palestinians contra the Arab, uh, the, the Israeli world, 
how would you see this problem solved within the ideology of the Venus project? Well, um, let me answer, actually. Uh, the, the solution, actually, and I've thought about this very thing. Um, the, the first thing is, is that people need to recognize that the majority of the conflicts that they've been worked into are actually generally almost always puppeteered by somebody higher up on the work trying to find a way to make money through yet another conflict. But that being said, the key problem with the Palestinian issue, as I understand it, is I have friends on both sides of the issue. I have Jewish friends and Arab friends is that the Palestinians essentially have nowhere to go. Uh, they, they basically were forced out of their homes when the, the superpowers decided to give um, the Jewish people their own um, place to live. Right, you know, but on the same token, the Jews also didn't really have anywhere to go. They'd been kind of living in other countries. It was a really bad situation, and the answer wasn't really good for anybody. Uh, so all in all... Um, the solution that the Venus Project would present is that these people who are fighting over places to live and things of that nature wouldn't have anything to fight over anymore because uh, if technology was applied for the Palestinian refugees, then they would have everything they needed and they wouldn't care about it anymore. Um, the only thing you'd still be fighting over at that point is the, uh, the religious significance of some of the places in question. And unfortunately, that's something that may take a while to really um, to get past. Uh, one of the things about that actually is, is that in many cases, um, it really actually, at least in my opinion, as he could probably shed more light on it if he wasn't here, if he was here. But my understanding of the Catholic and Protestant fight, for example, was that it was largely actually the fact that it was the religious issue is only part of it. A lot of it had to do with the fact that the, most of the Protestant Irish are actually Scottish or British in descent. And we uh, came over to Ireland because they were given land that belonged to the Irish people by the English nobles. Um, for those of you who have seen the movie Braveheart, you saw a similar example of this when Longshanks was giving uh, Scottish nobles you know, land in England and English nobles land in Scotland. This sort of disbursement of power is what, what really went on. So it, regardless of the issue of whether or not they're Protestants or Catholics, they didn't really care. I mean, the Catholics didn't really care. It was more of a matter of, you're in my country and you don't belong here, get out. Um, the fact that they're Protestant generally just meant that they were affiliated with the Church of England. Um, now, that being said, you know, I've talked to my Arab friends about this. Is there something in Islam that specifically makes you the enemies of Jews? And most of them have emphatically said, no, there isn't. It has nothing to do with that. Um, it has more to do with the fact that you know, our forefathers lived in this country and were just told to leave, um, and they had nowhere to go. You see, that's a classic example of people fighting over resources, you know, and the accommodations that they need to live, and it resulting in war that is just unnecessary. There's no reason why they, both of these people could not be given adequate ability to take care of themselves. So, mm -hmm. um, even even though I definitely get where you're coming from when when you mentioned that they're fighting over resources, uh, I I don't really think that. Um, the uh, religious part of this issue could be underestimated because as I have heard um, part of my family is Muslim as well and the main argument I find for this conf conflict is that it, it's, it's all about Jerusalem in, in this issue I mean the people of Palestine have places to live I mean the West Bank is um, 
more than adequate enough to house enough Palestinians, even for future generations, because the space available is enough. And within the concept of the Venus Project, we're, we're talking about available space and available resources. Um, I don't have any up-to-date information about how uh, they are doing on um, uh, resources to live, like food and water, but I do know that they have uh, enough space to live on, but that the main issue here is um, they just can't share a Jerusalem with the Palestinians, uh, sorry, with the Israelis, my bad. So, I mean, how how would we solve such an issue? I mean, uh, your understanding of the conflict is a little bit different than mine because uh, what I've been told is that the religious part of this is really the dominant part. Uh, how would you deal with this issue? Well, when you're dealing with something like that, inevitably you are touching on an area that is one of the things that the benefits of education to get rid of superstition will probably help. That's an example of religion being used for the wrong reasons. Um, it, it, you know, at least, like for example, in my understanding of Islam, when I talk to people about um, the Muslim religion, because there's a lot of people out there that are trying to blame everything on Islam, and I, I point out to them that, for example, um, uh, and from my understanding, actually having read some of the Quran myself, uh, Allah strictly forbids the targeting of innocents ever. Under any circumstances, this will not be done. He doesn't even hint around about it. He makes it very clear. It's not a, you know, be good to your fellow man vague thing. It's a, if you're going to go to war, you don't do this. Um, and clearly that's not what's going on. Um, on the other side of things, you know, uh, the Israelis are left with a very difficult situation themselves. You know, they're surrounded by people who hate them. Um, they are often blamed for things that are done by militants. And, and kind of what I was getting at, actually, is I remember this one report they did after that child was killed on the West Bank. Um, you know, you have that very emotional video that you're watching um, where that child that's crying on the West Bank, and they go to this Israeli colonel, and they're trying to interview him while he's in the middle of telling people what to do in the middle of a firefight. You know, so he's annoyed with them, but he goes ahead and talks to the press, and the press are like, what do you think about this child, you know, you know, being shot by your men? And he's like, what do you think of parents that knowingly bring their kids to a war zone? You know, he's like, now if you'll excuse me, I've got to get back to work. It's like, it's not that he didn't care that the child had been killed. It's just more of an issue is that people don't look at both sides of these conflicts. And after studying as much as I have about war and how much how just about every one of them is full of crap, there's usually some idiot puppeteering the whole thing. I don't want to call him an idiot. Let's call him a tyrant. Puppeteering the whole thing from underneath and benefiting from the, you know, from the conflict. When it comes to the religious value of, of certain places, inevitably, that is something that unfortunately will only go away in time. And when I compared the Irish conflict to the one between the Israelis and the Palestinians, it, the conflict in Ireland to liberate the country has been going on, from what I understand, since like the 14th century. It takes a really long time for people to get sick of that. In addition to the fact, you have to remember that these sorts of problems only perpetuate themselves. You know, uh, the, the Irish you know, Republican Army member will kill some British police officer who in turn, that British police officer's family will get angry. You know, maybe that police officer's brother will join the fight against the IRA. You know, then that person will go and kill somebody in Ireland. You know, these, you know in the end, the, the real reason that everybody's fighting gets lost in the shuffle. You know, and it's just like the Hatfield and McCoys, you know, of legend in the United States. There's this legend of these two families that have hated each other for generations, 
No, they don't even remember what it started over. What they do remember is that they shot Paul like two weeks ago. You know, <laughs> it's just the, the, the never-ending conflict that gets to that point where you forget about it. And it really, unfortunately, comes down to those two sides just finally getting sick of it and moving on. And unfortunately, that may take a while. The, that's an example of um, the way that the Venus Project combats that sort of thing is to try to convince people that fighting over religion is silly. Even in my understanding of the religions, um, for example, the, the Crusades, Jesus Christ would have never, ever suggested that we should murder hundreds of thousands of people so that we can own a specific piece of land. You know, that's, that's absurd. You know, um, and I don't really honestly believe from the, you know, the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad would really go along with that either. Now, they do have specific commands in Islam that you have to go to Mecca at one point during your life and all that. If people would just stop shooting each other, then the Israelis wouldn't care if they showed up. The Palestinians wouldn't care if Israelis came into these holy places. And, but it's going to take, like I said, it's going to take, you're going to have to get to a point where people are so sick of the conflict that they want to stop it on their own. And that's pretty much what happened to the Troubles, as they call them in Ireland, is that they just got sick of it. They just didn't care anymore. It's like, look, you know, it's, it's been long enough. We're done. And uh, unfortunately, that may take a while. Um, now, uh, that being said, I want to move on. Uh, proxy, uh, you have the floor about this chapter, about communication and language. Um, since everyone's talking about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, I'll just uh, give uh, some minor comments on it. Um, there is a movement called the Zionist Movement who believe that Israel was promised to them by God because they are God's chosen people. And that, uh, disregarding all the other propaganda we've heard over the years, um, the Zionists are a bunch of powerful people. Um, I hate to get into conspiracy theories, maybe it's not a conspiracy theory, who knows. But anyway, um, for funding of World War One and World War Two, the British promised Israel to um, the Zionists. So they basically got their way um, when it was created about Palestine. So we have these bunch of people, like there are only a few, a select group of people, like they're not representative uh, the rest of the Jewish population who believe um, that Israel is the right of all Jews and um, no one else but Jews can live there. So we have that sect. Whereas we have the Palestinians which are in the utter state of despair at the moment because the land has been raped and pillaged by outside force, people across the ocean kind of thing. So I do also um, sympathize with them. And one thing with that we can note from the latest conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians about Gaza was that the Israelis have complete disregard for all human rights and all that kind of stuff. So basically, they don't really mind too much what in the world they ever do to the Palestinians. And the only thing that Palestine can actually do to fight back or defend what little left of land they have or prevent themselves from going into more despair or losing all sense of identity or hope of, of the world is they've gone to resort to suicide bombings and um, slight rocket fire into Israel. Um, the whole area is a melting pot. Uh, I think it was back 4,000 years ago, the um, Hebrews were ejected out of Egypt they weren't Jewish back then, they were just called Hebrews because they came from the East. So they were ejected out of Egypt and they, um, these people conquered the land of Cantonite or something like that. 
And once they conquered the land, um, they developed the 12 tribes of Abraham and all that kind of crap. So the history goes back 4,000 years and people have been fighting over it forever. So that area of the world has huge problems. Um, but I say as long as the Dome of the Rock stands, the um, Palestinians have something to fight for. Now we move on to the next part about uh, language and how language is used to convey messages. Throughout history, um, language, well, no, culture and um, know-how, culture know-how, culture capital has been transferred through the um, creation of poems, stories, and um, emotional speeches. And an interesting person in American pop culture, his name is Israel Bissell. And I say that most Americans would not have a clue of Israel Bissell. He was the man who rode um, 300 kilometers to warn the American colonies of the impending British imperialist um, invasion. This story has, uh, however, been changed to a different person who actually only rode, say, 20 miles um, to warn the uh, colonists of the, like, uh, the British invading. So basically, um, language and stories and culture, well, the Israel Bissell uh, mess off with the other guy um, was created to invoke patriotism and stuff like that during the American Civil War. Um, so we can see that using stories and emotional language, um, well, that in that side of the example, provokes patriotism. Um, basically, there's a huge gap in the world, as um, BTV was just talking about from the book, about the misunderstanding between people. And I know for a fact, like just the other day, I was arguing over a simple um, formula called Bernoulli's formula, where somebody couldn't understand me because I was using technical language. And that's a problem. Our current media has done a very good job at skewing the language that people use to effectively communicate with each other. And it's more biased to impressions and emotions that people use to communicate with each other. This may be well an effective tool for communication 100,000 years ago, but the times have changed and the need to evolve. The media also has put people for a fear of technical language and fear of mathematics and stuff like that. Um, uh, the involvement of language of science is a very good way to move, and that's basically all I have to say. Okay. Gregory, you still with us? Uh, I'm still here. That was a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, please comment on the nature of language and its inefficiencies. Yeah, you know, I, I've been sitting here listening, and so, you guys are so right. I mean, the language has gotten so skewed, and, and of course, going back to all these people that, that fight over land, and, you know, if you were to sit, do the simplest thing, there are a couple of things. Grab a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle. On the left side, you have all the things we have in common. On the right side, you have all the things that, that are different. I would be willing to bet the list on the left side is going to be so much longer. And, we, and you know what, Jock and then touch on that. You know, we need to quit focusing on our petty differences and start looking at what we all have in common. And you know what's funny, if, if I may, think about it in this way. 
okay? Go to a playground and watch young children playing, okay? And, and just watch them for a little while. Do you think they care if the other kids they're playing with are black or white or green or purple or yellow or what religion they go, they believe in? Or All they care about is having fun and swinging and sliding, and that's, they all have that in common. That's such a simple way of looking at things. I, you know, how sad that we don't, instead of learning from our children, that we turn it the other way around and teach them how to be like us. It, it just, it's so backwards. It just, it just amazes me sometimes. And that's the concept. If you don't mind, I, I want to comment a little bit. Is is one of the things. No, jump Jack in. I got. I actually, I actually got to get up. I'll be back in thirty seconds. So go okay. ahead. Okay. Well, one of the things that Jock talks about is that the only time that those children are not going to play together is if they've been taught by the adults that there's something wrong with it. You know, that's when they're suddenly going to have a problem. Okay. Um, it, it, basically, that's when you're going to run into an issue where you know, these kids are not going to be able to play together and then they're going to be taught not to communicate. That, that's really, I mean, I know it's a difficult thing to wrap your head around, but what Jacques is trying to point out is that he feels that even our language, our means of even communicating with one another is so inefficient. And when you think about it, it's actually very fortunate that I have a bunch of English-speaking panelists today considering the fact that they come from all over the world. Um, I mean, like, you know, thanks to the Internet, we can have these people on the same radio show but, you know, we're lucky that our, our for example, I mean, two of, I mean, all of the rest of our, our panelists tonight happen to be from English-speaking countries. Um, but, you know, our, we're lucky that we have somebody from the Netherlands. You know, I mean, what's the native language where you come from? Dark Dancer. It's, it's Dutch, but um, even though uh, English is, is a very dominant language here as well, I mean, uh, even in the business culture, we use English as well. Um, yeah, basically, most of the Dutch people speak English very fluent, but in a live conversation, it it becomes difficult to speak very fast, but nevertheless, it's very fluent as well. I mean, and there's also just the issues, like when I said English speaking, you know, it occurred to me that I'm like, well, the English that's spoken in Ireland and the English that's spoken in England and the English that's spoken in Australia, you know, there are a lot of subtle differences. Like, you know, I learned this on my trip to Ireland, that when the gentleman offered to put the suitcases in the boot, I was like, what? You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, wait a minute, I read about that. You know, you guys call the boot the trunk of your car. <laughs> He's like, yep, that's what it means. Um, I remember talking to a girl from England. And um, I showed her my picture because she wanted to see it. And she says, oh, you're fit. Um, I'm not exactly fit by American standards. I'm actually a little overweight. And I looked at myself. I was like, fit, what do you mean? She's like, oh, that's right. You're American. You wouldn't understand. I was like, basically, I said you're sexy. So I mean, the, the, the differences that we create in our language are so complicated. And in many cases, for example, when you learn other languages, like um, J Japanese, uh, Hawaiian, uh, there's so much in your meaning that comes entirely from how you pronounce something. Like, right. uh, the, you know, aloha has like six different meanings in Hawaiian, all depending on how you said it. Um, Japanese is the same way. Uh, your inflections and can ch entirely change the meaning of something. Um, 
you know, not to mention the taboos. If you don't say son at the end of everything you're saying to somebody, you're essentially dishonoring them, I mean, as far as their name. You know, th- these are the kinds of things that develop in our individual cultures, and then we need a universal language that we can use to speak to one another so that we don't have to go through all of this. Um, Esperanto. And, and, and shouldn't that universal language be science? I mean, to me, that's the most logical, you know. Another example. Well, that is certainly the, what he's hinting at. One of the small, yeah, one of the, <laughs> one of the smallest words in the English language, it, I-T, it. When you were little, if you were going to get it, that was bad. But when you grow up, getting it ain't all that bad. Same word. Look how it's been skewed. So, right. like I said, you know, the language of science, there's a great movie called Contact with Jodie Foster, if you've ever seen it. And, and it was ironic that everybody tried to interpret these signals coming down from space in their own language to be uh, negative and, and, you know, catastrophic and all these other things. And, and all she wanted to do was interpret them in the, in the language with which they were written, which is science. That makes them benign. That doesn't leave much open for interpretation. So, you know, I think that's the direction we need to be going. You know, and that's, that's something that I think that he was really trying to get at, is that it's difficult for people also just of different cultures to speak to one another. You know, um, it, in just also in social interaction, like... Um, when my friend went to Japan, um, it was very clear to him that, like, for example, if, if you are getting money out of a bank, it is extremely rude for you to count the money in front of the teller, as in, like, they will start yelling and screaming at you. And, in fact, if they miscounted, it is rude of you to be the person to go and talk to them. You have to send a friend of yours to go talk to them so that they don't feel offended. Um, you know, in some it? other cultures, things are... That's in Japan. Uh, if you if you count the money in front of the bank teller, you're in a lot of trouble. Um, you know, it just it, there are a lot of taboos and things that we've created in our social structures that make it difficult to communicate with people without them becoming offended. Particularly when you're trying to translate something into their own language, you know, then you got to depend on the person in question truly understanding you before they can translate it into something else. You know, that's actually why um, uh, one of our listeners uh, previously wants, uh, her name is Juanita, she wants to translate uh, Zeitgeist Addendum into Spanish, but she doesn't just want to have subtitles, she wants to actually dub over and have a, uh, an audio track in Spanish so that the people can hear it in her native language, because just letting them watch it with subtitles in many cases is not enough, it doesn't convey the right. meaning. Uh, th- this right. is kind of what he's getting at, is that if we don't have these common languages, and as you said, science would be great, you know, if we could do it that way, and as you said, you know, to make it so that it can't be open to interpretation, you talk about the media, you don't talk about a group of people who specialize in making communication ineffective, you know, listen oh, to the different goodness. ways that they, that they stretch the way people say things, you know, like, or they'll, they'll take something out of context and they'll run a marathon with it, you know, you see this on our forums, and these are all people speaking the same language, you know, in theory. Yeah, but, you know, they, they end up, like, just going off the deep end. You know, it's like they want to move to a different direction with it every time. And that's why it's necessary for us to look into having this common language and common understanding. Because in many cases, um, it, 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 you know, also it goes beyond language. It's, it's also about culture. But, you know, like, you know, for example, if you just were reading out of a book trying to translate to Japanese and you didn't know the tradition of saying the word 
san after somebody's name, you might accidentally offend that Japanese person and, you know, through no intention of your own. You know, so that that's basically, I think, what he was trying to get at in this chapter. We're now down to the last ten minutes of the show. So um, rather than read some more, I'm going to leave my bookmark where we're at. And um, I wanted to open the floor to a further conversation. And um, are you, first are of you all... Are you going to take any, any callers or questions? You know, I've been watching the switchboard, and I don't think anybody has been calling. Um, okay. I'm going to look again. If anybody wants to call in and have a, ask, have a question answered, now would be the time. Uh, the phone number is 347-945-7747. That's 347-945-7747. Um, Anyway, um, in any case, uh, while we're waiting for callers in the event that there aren't any, um, I want to thank all of you for coming on the show. I know that all of you are on different time zones. It's actually amazing that we can come together and have this exchange of ideas. Uh, that's actually another important part that I would point out that was in that chapter. And this all goes back to the, the, the ad hominem concept that I bring up all the time. It's that people have an egotistical vested interest in their opinion and they don't want to change it because then they'll feel like they're inferior somehow. And this totally hinders learning. You know, if somebody came to the meeting between the Palestinians and the Israelis and tried to give them a, you know, look, guys, what you're saying is just not logical speech, you know, you got to imagine that these people are going to argue with you and they're going to get all emotional and they're not going to allow you to be able to, you know, convince them that it's kind of silly that they're shooting one another over a piece of land that, the Prophet Muhammad, nor Jesus, nor even the entity you know that the Jews really uh, worship would really want people to be killing each other over. But you know that's all lost in the shuffle. That, that's an example, really. You know the the fact that Nikolai Tesla, I believe it was, and Edison refused to you know collect the Nobel Peace Prize together because they wouldn't get on stage together. Um, you know those are all examples of people's emotions getting out of hand, and particularly in our means of communication. We have a tendency to invest, invest far too much in the way of emotional uh, bullying. Like, you know, it's okay to push somebody down for not agreeing with you, and you're just not inclined to listen to people unless they figure out ways to get past that. That's actually why Jacques recommends when you're dealing with religious people or fanatics of one kind or another is not to attack them, but to throw a curve at them and educate them, and then they come to the conclusion on their own. You don't have to tell them. You know, like I told you the story, I believe, about the Ku Klux Klan chapter that Jacques Fresco broke up, the group of white supremacists. He joined the Klan, pretended to be one of them, and then educated all of them, and then they didn't want to be racists anymore. <laughs> you know, if he had just went in there and fought with them, nobody would have listened to him. You know, so does anybody on the panel want to comment further? Um, can I just mention that, um, Neil? the likelihood of me speaking English at this moment, if the English had not have occupied Ireland in the past two, three centuries, um, would be very slim and I'd probably be having more difficulty talking to you. <laughs> That's very true. I actually um, am planning to get the Rosetta Stone to study Gaelic because I want to learn to speak it. That's cool. But um, I hear that they're teaching it again now. Is that just like an elective, or, I mean, what, what's the deal with that? It's a mandatory language to learn in uh, high school and your primary school. Oh, excellent. Is it being spoken effectively, or is it just like, I mean, in the United States we have alternate language classes, but you never really get much out of it. 
Well, you have to do um, Gaelic um, up until you reach high school, and um, at that point you can choose like another language, but you still have to stick with Irish unless you have some form of dyslexia or you're you, you you're exempt from it then, or if you're from like um, Africa or America or some other foreign nation where they can't they don't speak it or haven't spoke it because at that age if you don't know it then it would be harder for you to pick it up. Now. To our colleague from the Netherlands, um, how is language taught in your country? I mean, obviously you speak English. How did that how did that happen? Um, well, basically, to start with, I talk English to myself, um, which is kind of a, <laughs> a embarrassing story because I used to watch cartoons all the time when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I basically self-taught myself in the basic of English, but. As for the formal part of it, uh, we do get taught uh, English at school. I believe that with the um, the basic schoolers, I don't know how you call this in English, but the first school you go to here is what I call basic school. Uh, I believe they teach it from um, the years uh, 10 to 12 right now. And when you go to high school, um, the education gets more sophisticated. You get a lot of English, and it's it's basically a main focus. Even some parts of education are being given in English, in, except of Dutch here. So uh, they're uh, they're slowly trying to focus more on the English language than our own language itself, which is quite remarkable. Well, yeah, some people would say that's New World Order propaganda in the making. Um, uh, what are the language classes like in Australia? Um, it really depends what school you go to. Um, many schools just offer the um, two languages, which is French or Japanese. Um, I have no idea why Japanese or French, but uh, that's basically it. Um, many other schools, um, depending on the amount of kids at the school or something like that. Offer, say, Indonesian or German or Mandarin. And I guess basically the large languages get taught. I know when I was in high school, I chose Japanese because basically I already had um, quite a you know, slight coherent grasp of it um, based off watching cartoons when I was a kid. Um, that's odds and varieties. Um, that's how language is taught. Um, hmm. Though the teaching of the English language in school needs to be improved. Well, um, no, absolutely, I totally get that. And um, actually, one of my listeners uh, wanted to comment. Hey, hey, most of us Americans learn English from cartoons, <laughs> um, which is which is more or less true. Um, I that's why I'm very specific about what my daughter watches. She learns to talk by watching Big Bird. Um, but uh, we're down to the last 90 seconds of our show. Um, I once again want to thank all of my panelists for being here tonight. And um, I hope to do this show again in the future. It is my eventual intention to have the entire book in audio format so that people can read it. Um, and I will encourage people, if you're interested in uh, furthering these conversations, please don't hesitate to come to the Zeitgeist Movement Ventrilo server. Uh, you can find that information right now. Somebody has it posted in the chat. And you can also find it on the Zeitgeist forums. For those of you who are new listeners and don't know what I'm talking about, go to uh, Google search the Zeitgeist Movement, and you can enter whatever forum of whatever language you wish. Um, 
thanks again to everybody. Um, I hope everybody had a good time listening to me drone on while reading. Um, I hope I managed to keep it interesting. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, man. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Appreciate you having us on. That's no problem. You guys are helping me out too because it takes a lot of pressure off of me. <laughs> But anyway, thanks again for participating in this edition of V Radio. And um, I look forward to our next episode. And uh, perhaps, you know, down the road, I know that they're working on actually putting together a network for the Venus Project. And um, I've been asked to be part of that project as well. So we will see what comes of that. Good night, everybody. And um, the the archive of this show will be available. I will post the uh, the link in the thread There is a sticky thread in the Venus Project section for this show called V-Radio, a new voice for the Venus Project. Good night, everyone. And that's it. Oh, man. (laughs) That was all right. Yeah. It was okay. My...